Greetings and welcome to Heirloom Radio, a different kind of oldies program. I'm your host, John Lovering. Before I introduce and play this track's featured radio show, I'm going to take you back in another episode, episode three, of the history of radio. In episode two, I left off by explaining why it took quite a bit of time for radio to catch on. It had to do with the lack of alternating current or AC power sources, and radio tubes that could run on AC. Everything was DC or battery operated in the early radios, and the batteries were a nightmare to deal with. They were dirty, big, heavy, had to be maintained and charged, and they were expensive and not very dependable. During the mid-1920s, radios were mostly broadcasting music, humor, and news, with music being radio's most popular broadcast. Bing Crosby, Kate Smith, Joseph M. White, also known as the silver-masked tenor, and Miss Vaughn DeLeith's crooning. Well, her style matched Bing Crosby's style, and that crooning style of music was perfect for getting the most out of the 1920s radio transmitters, which certainly had limited capability. Big bands were given a huge boost by radio broadcast in the 1920s, Rudy Valley, Paul Whiteman, Vincent Lopez, and then there were the comedy programs. First big comedy show was The Happiness Boys that began in 1921 and ran until 1939. And then Ed Wynn, right from vaudeville, made the first broadcast of a stage show in 1922. Then Sam Rothfell, also known as Roxy, began a variety radio show in 1930 and Freeman Gosden and Charles Correll's Amos and Andy was already a national favorite by then. One-shot guest appearances resulted in people becoming stars almost overnight. Will Rogers went on the radio in 1922. He was considered the greatest of all American homie philosophers, and he made special radio appearances throughout the years until he died in an accident in 1935. On August 15, 1935, Famous aviator Wiley Post, who was 36 years old at the time, and Will Rogers, who was 55, were flying together in a Lockheed hybrid plane when they crashed just 15 miles outside of Point Barrow, Alaska. The engine had stalled just after takeoff, causing the plane to nosedive and crash into a lagoon. The death of these two great men, who had brought hope and lightheartedness during the dark days of the Great Depression, was a shocking loss to the nation, who had come to love them by way of their radio broadcasts. Flags throughout the country were lowered to half-mast in honor of Wiley and Rogers, and Wiley's plane, known as Winnie Mae, remains on display today at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., Near the crash site, there now sits two concrete monuments to remember the tragic accident that took the lives of these two great men. Radio allowed Americans to get to know these men and women who made up the early years of radio broadcasting. Next time on the History of Radio, I will go into another big promotional event that radio undertook, sports. And now the track you're going to hear is entitled Bacon and Beans and Limousines from October 1931. As I mentioned, radio allowed the words of Will Rogers to reach the largest and diverse audience he ever entertained. In October of 1931, in the midst of the Great Depression, he spoke on a nationwide broadcast for President Herbert Hoover's Organization on Unemployment Relief and delivered what became known as his Bacon and Beans and Limousines speech. 
His remarks that evening and his other frequent radio appearances in the 1930s lightened his listeners' hearts and gave them hope during a very desperate time. Here's Will Rogers' speech from October 31st. Bacon and beans and limousines. advertising or trying to say anything. If the mouthwash you're using uh, is uh, not the right kind and it tastes sort of like sheep dip, why, you just have to go right on using it. I can't advise any other kind at all. And uh, if the cigarettes that you're using, why, if they uh, if they don't uh, <clears throat> lower your Adam's apple, why, I don't know of any that will. You just have to cut out apples, I guess that's the only thing I know. Now, Mr. Uh, Mr. Owen Young asked me to uh, to annoy on this program uh, this evening. You all know Mr. Owen B. Young. You know he's uh, he's the only uh, uh, sole surviving wealthy Democrat. So naturally, when a wealthy Democrat asked me to do anything, I, I had to do it. See, well, Mr. Young, he's head of the Young Plan. No, he's the originator of the Young Financial European Plan. He's the uh, head of uh, a Young Men's uh, Temperance Union and originator of Young's Market and Young Kipper. And uh, they uh, was the uh, first uh, Democratic child born of uh, white parents in Youngstown, Ohio. He... Uh, started the Young Plan in, in Europe. That was that every nation pay uh, just according to what they could afford to pay, see? And, uh, well, somebody else come along with, a, with, a, uh, with an older plan, Young's Plan, and it was that nobody don't pay anybody anything. And, uh, of course, that's the oldest plan there is. And that's the one they're working under now. That's why we ain't getting anything from Europe. So when Mr. Young asked me to appear, well, I said, well, uh, I, I'm kind of particular. I said, uh, who do I, who's going who's to be the other speaker? Who else is on the, who else is on the uh, bill with me? And he said, well, I'll, uh, he said, uh, how would uh, Mr. Hoover do? Well, I slightly heard of him, you know, and I said, well, I'll, I'll think it over. I'll, so I looked into Mr. Hoover's record and uh, inquired of everybody. And uh, after I had uh, kind of thrown out about two-thirds of what Democrats said about him, why, I figured that I wouldn't have much to lose by appearing with Mr. Hoover, so I'm here this, this evening appearing on the bill with Mr. Hoover. So uh, now you, uh, if you, uh, uh, I expect you won't hear any more of Amos and Andy. It'll just be Hoover and Rogers from now on. We're reading the papers every day, and... They get us all excited over to one or a dozen different problems that's supposed to be before this country. There's not, but, there's not really but one problem before the whole country at this time. It's not the balancing of Mr. Mellon's budget. That, that's his worry. That ain't ours. And it's not the uh, League of Nations that we read so much about. Or it's not, uh, it's not the silver question. 
The only problem that confronts this country today is that at least seven million people are out of work. That's our only problem. There is no, there, there is no other one before us at all. They, it's to see that every man that uh, wants to, able to work, is allowed to find a place to, to go to work, and also to arrange some way of getting a more equal distribution of the, of the wealth in the country. Now, uh, it's uh, prohibition. We hear a lot about that. Well, that, that. That's nothing to compare to your neighbor's children that, that are hungry. It's, it's, it's food. It ain't drink that we're worried about today. Here a few years ago, we were so afraid that the poor people were liable to take a drink that now we've fixed so they can't even get something to eat. So uh, here we are in the country with, with more wheat and more corn and more money in the bank and more cotton, more everything in the world. There's not a product that you can name that we haven't gotten more of it than any country ever had in, in the face of the earth. And yet we've got people starving. They, we'll hold the distinction of being the only nation in the history of the world that ever went to the poorhouse in an automobile. Potter's field are lined with granaries full of grain. Now, if there ain't something cockeyed in, in an arrangement like that, then this microphone here in front of me is, well, it's, it's a cuspidor, that's all. Now, uh, I've, I think that perhaps they'll, they'll arrange it. I think some our big men will perhaps fix some way of fixing a different distribution of things. If they don't, they're certainly not big men and won't be with us long. That's one thing. Now, I say, and have always claimed, that things would pick up in 32. 32, that's, well, why 32? Well, thir because 32 is an election year. See? And the Republicans always see that everything looks good on, on election year. See? They'll, uh, they, they give us, they give us three good years and, uh, and one, uh, and one bad one. No, no, three bad ones and one good one. I like to get it wrong. That's the Democrats do the other. They give us three, three bad years and one good one. But the good one always comes on the year that the voting is. See, so uh, you know the Democrats are always just one year late with our election. See, now if, we, if they was running this year, well they'd be all right. But they're one year late. Everything will pick up. Everything will pick up next year and be fine. These people that you're asked to to aid by, they're, they're not asking for, for charity. They're asking, naturally asking for a job. But if you can't give them a job, why, the next best thing you can do is, is see that they have food and the necessities of life. You know, there's not a one of us that has anything, but uh, these people that are without it now haven't contributed to what we've got. I don't suppose there's a... a the most unemployed, the hungriest man in America has contributed, contributed in some way to the wealth of every millionaire in America. It wasn't the working class that brought this condition on at all. It was the, it was the big boys themselves who thought that this financial drunk we were going through was going to last forever. They over-merged and over-capitalized and over-everything else. That's the fix that we're in now. You know, I, uh, I think that every town and every city 
will will raise this this money. In fact, they can't afford not to. They've got the money because there's as much money in the country as there ever was. The uh, only the fewer people have it, but it's there. And uh, I think the towns will will all will all raise it because I've been on a good many charity affairs all over the country, and I have yet to see a town or a city ever fail to raise the money when when they knew the need was there and they and they saw the necessity. Every one of them will will come through. Europe. Uh, don't like us, and they think we're arrogant and and uh, bad manners, and have a million faults. But every one of us give us, every one of them. They, well, they give us credit for being uh, for being liberal. Well, going it, I, we are. Uh, people are liberal. Our Americans. I don't know about America being fundamentally sound and all that after dinner hooey, but I do know that America is fundamentally liberal. Now, I want to thank uh, Mr. Gifford, the head of this unemployment, thank Mr. Young, who, and I certainly want to thank Mr. Hoover for the privilege of being allowed to appear on the same program with him, because uh, I, uh, Mr., I know that this subject is very dear to Mr. Hoover's heart. I know that he'd rather see the the uh, problem of unemployment solved than he would to see all the other problems he has before him combined. And uh, if every town and every city will get out and raise their quota and what they need for this winter, why, it'll make him a very happy man. And happiness hasn't been a steady diet with our president. He's had a very tough uphill fight. And this will make him feel very good, and he's a, he's a very human man. I thank you. Good night. Thank you, Will Rogers. And now back to New York. 